We're going to hear God speak now as we listen to the Bible or read along with me if you like. Uh, The Bible reading is John chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through to 25. If you're following along in the church Bibles, it's on page 928. Uh, Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen uh, where you're watching. So John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
So I am not a thrill seeker in the slightest. I have never done bungee jumping, I've never done skydiving, and I don't plan on it. I like my feet on the floor, I'm a big fan of gravity, and I like to not test it, right? But the, bit, the most extreme thing I've ever done when it comes to thrill, sports and all that kind of thing is abseiling. Once I did it down south, and I remember the instructor telling three very important things when it comes to abseiling. The first was this. They told me what was certain, that these ropes, this Caribbean, this, all these things were safe and secure, so rest. The second thing they said was what I needed to do, right? I needed to hold the ropes and I needed to keep my legs straight, not jelly legs, right, as I went down this rock, right, what I needed to do. And the third thing was expectations. It's going to be scary, but it'll be fun. Three things. And it was interesting, as we came to John 15, reading this week, Jesus is preparing his disciples, and as it were, he, he almost says three very similar things. What is certain, what they're to do, and expectations of being a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus, at John 15, is moments away from his death, and he says, come follow me. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of him? We're going to look at three things. What is certain, what we need to do, and expectations. Let's start with what is certain. We come to the last in John's Gospel of the I am statements. Jesus says, I'm the bread, I'm the life, I'm the way, the truth, I'm the shepherd, I'm the door, I'm the resurrection. And we come to the last one, and it's a gardening one. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Like all I am statements, it's not up for discussion. It's not like Jesus said, would you like me to? No, no, he says, this is who I am, that I am the true vine. And more than that, verse 5, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Now, why does Jesus use this gardening metaphor, right? He's using plant truth to tell us about theological truth when it comes to being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, right? So I'm going to give you a bit of a plant lesson because some of you I know you don't have a green thumb, right? You stick to fake plants. You've made a cactus die, right, under your care, right? You're that kind of... So if that's you, don't worry, you're in a safe place, right? Plant truth. This is a vine. This is a branch, right? The branch comes from the vine. The vine does not come from the branch, Right? It might be seem basic, but put it another way. It's not like branches are just going around trying to look for a vine to connect to, are we? You don't see that, right? But they grow from the vine. Now, that may seem like a basic, but the order is very important. Because verse 16, here's the theological truth. You did not choose me, I chose you. That order is very important, that the Father proactively pursues you to spiritually awaken you by the Holy Spirit, to unite you to Christ, and that is how you become a follower of Jesus. No other way. That we do not naturally pursue God, that God pursues us. That Jesus is like is the vine, and we are the branches. And spiritually speaking, we are alive because of him. And that is important to know, because if you've been a Christian for a while, you can be tempted to think, you know what? I reckon naturally I'd be a Christian. You know, the Spirit just nudged me along, but I was already there when it comes to following Jesus. Even if God didn't choose me, I reckon in my heart of hearts I would choose. No, no, no. Verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not just a little bit or something, nothing. 
When it comes to us and God, if God did not intentionally pursue you, if he is not the vine, then we are not the branches. Spiritually speaking, without God, we would not exist. We would have no faith. We would not bear any fruit pleasing to God. But God out of love says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And that is supposed to be immense comfort. Because I presume, as a Christian, there's days when you wake up thinking, am I really a Christian? I mean, today's not been a good day. Does, does God still want me? You think that? It's common. But here's the comfort. It is not dependent on you. It's not like we're a branch that found a vine. No, no, the vine found us. Relationally, let's put it a different way. Jesus chose you and the comfort is he doesn't unchoose his people. Jesus loved you, but he doesn't choose to unlove you. He befriends you. He doesn't defriend you. That may be our human experience, but it's not our experience when it comes to us and God. He is the vine. We are the branches united to Jesus. But there's more than that. Because what does verse 1 say? My father is the gardener. That God, Jesus not only chooses us to be a branch, but he wants us to be a fruitful branch. And he not only chose us out of love, but he chose us to show love. And so the father is the gardener. Look, I reckon there's two types of people when it comes to gardening. Those who garden because they have to, and those who garden because you get to. You love it, Right? Uh, Paul Dale, our city pastor and I, uh, you know, we fit one of those categories. He gardens because he has to. Uh, I garden because I love to. Right? I love to garden. So when it comes to pruning and pruning plants, we do it in different ways. I've seen Paul prune plants and he just hacks away. He goes, he goes, he goes. And I look at it and sometimes it looks like a stump and I think, oh my goodness, I don't think that plant's going to survive. Right? He just goes through it quickly. Whereas I will prune, but I'll prune so delicately. So much so that people don't even notice it's pruned, right? There's no difference, right? God the Father is not like Paul or I when it comes to pruning. He's not brash and he's not soft. He knows his branches and he prunes. He prunes. Now, why does a gardener prune? We prune because it removes the stored energy and it promotes new growth. That's what pruning does. And why does God prune? Verse 2 Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. Here's a promise that you ain't going to find on any Christian mug. God will prune you. He will. He is hungry for you to bear more fruit. He does not want you to stay in your Christian walk as you are. He wants your faith to grow in love and obedience. Now, we might think, you know what, God, I'm okay. I don't think I need pruning. It's all right. Maybe a massage pat in the back, right? But pruning? Because pruning is shocking. It's painful, isn't it? But God will cut and chop and trim and prune you. He is not content for you to stay the way you are. He has better things in mind than you remaining the same. Look, you think about the times of great spiritual growth in your Christian walk. And it's amazing how much they coincide with times of pruning. You know, every time I prune, let's say, the blueberry bush I have at home, you know what I think every time I've done it? <gasps> what have I done? 
But the next season, there are more berries on that tree than there are the year before. And God is ruthlessly determined to shape you into something more better, more beautiful than you are, to bear more fruit that can be seen and experienced by others. So that's the first thing, what is certain. The second thing is what we are to do. You know, often when we think about that first point, we can be tempted to think almost fatalistic. Well, if he's, the, if he's the vine with the branch, you know, what's the point, right? What's the point of what I do? But Jesus doesn't think like that. He's adamant who he chooses, but what we do is very important. Now, what word in chapter 15 comes up many times, right? 11 times, in fact. You know what it is? The word remain. Verse 4, remain in me as I remain in you. Verse 9, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, verse 10, you will remain in my love. Right? Stay. Don't go anywhere. Don't move. And in doing this, Jesus highlights two types of branches, two types of disciples, which I presume may be here today, right? Those who remain on the vine and bear fruit and those who don't. Those branches which are alive and those that are dead, those living disciples and dead disciples. Now, here's the question. How do you know which branch you are? Because when you become a Christian, it's not like you get beamed down this fish sticker that you put in your bumper car, right? Or you get like a cross tattoo, right? There's nothing physical about when you become a Christian that proves and highlight that I'm a Christian. I presume when it came to Judas, people thought he was on the vine. But he wasn't. That's why the focus here is on fruit. The way that you live your life, evidence of a change, a life-giving relationship with Jesus. That's why it says, verse 5, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Verse 6, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Fruit, the way that you behave, what you do will expose which vine you're connected to. It will expose, in the end, the frauds. I don't know if you saw this week, uh, the only Australian to interview Adele with her recent new album went all the way to England, paid a million dollars for this exclusive interview, travelled all the way there and interviewed Adele about a new album. But when asked, had he listened to it? He said no. 17-hour flight and couldn't listen to 30 minutes of a new album. And so she canned the interview. They couldn't air it. Because his actions exposed him, didn't it? He was just doing it. He didn't really care about it down in the music, right? And your actions will expose you, what you do. That you may attend church, say the right Christian things, Hang out around here, listen to Christian Spotify playlists, but it's your behavior, it's your character that is truly telling. And the fruit God is talking about here is spelled out in verse, what is it, 12. My command is this love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. That love's not a feeling or you being lovely, or think you're lovely, but as a sacrificial, costly, other person-centered kind of love that is experienced 
and noticed by others. So let me just push this warning a bit harder, right? If people are shocked to find out you're a Christian because your behaviour is not Christian-like, then that's a warning sign. If over the years there has been no difference to the way you treat your friend, your spouse, those in your workplace, that you haven't grown in kindness, haven't changed in the way that you speak about people in empathy, in gentleness, if everyone else is the problem, these are warning signs. If you say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't follow what he says, or yes, I love Jesus, but I don't obey the Bible, then that is a warning sign. Perhaps you are the branch that has not remained in Jesus' love because you were never connected in the first place. And the warning here is the fire is waiting. My encouragement to me, to you, if this is you, do not fake it till you make it because you won't make it. Admit to it and come to Jesus in repentance. But I know there's a number of here who you are the branches who are bearing fruit and right now, given what I've just said, you're worried thinking it's you. Right? You feeling that? I think it's hard because... Our experience of fruit as city dwellers is this. You want an apple, what do you do? You walk to Woolies, you buy an apple. If you're a kid, it's free, right? You take it and you go, you got an apple. Very few of us farm our own apples, right? But if you were a farmer of fruit, you would plant the seed, you would grow the plant. That would take years. You would watch it grow. You'd have to water it. And then eventually, eventually, you would have fruit. Fruit is slow work, right? It takes a while. And there are seasons in your Christian life, right? Seasons of drought, seasons of winter. Seasons of spring and summer of great growth. But you have to wait for it and see it. And this is why I think you need other Christians in your life, because we can often be blind to our own fruit. But friends, when it comes to the, if you look back over the years and you see the difference that God has done in your life, the way in which you've grown in kindness, in caring for others, that you're growing in wanting to forgive, quick to say, I'm sorry, that you're encouraging, that you're generous, these are signs that God is at work in your life. And they're there to give you comfort and assurance that you are a living branch. Because you know, a branch is alive. Why? Because the sap of the trunk flows into it. And Jesus flows into you by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives you the energy and the drive to worship him. And so what you do, friends, is supposed to bring comfort and assurance that Christ is at work in me, that the fruits of the Spirit are being on display. Because the most important thing God wants for your life is for you to bear fruit. He doesn't care about your car, your house, your travel plans. He cares that you bear fruit and that it is noticed and seen by others. The third and final thing, 
expectations. If you know me, you know I'm all about expectations. I go into life with very low expectations so that it can be a better experience, right? I've done this with parenting, with pastoring. Even I do it with movies, right? Go into a movie, think this is going to be a terrible movie. And I think at the end of it, oh, Pitch Perfect 3 wasn't too bad, right? It was. I lower expectations and it increased. But when it comes to Jesus, he's talking about expectations and what it means to follow. He doesn't overpromise, he doesn't underpromise, right? He lays it out, expectations. You're going to follow me, then verse 18, expect to be hated. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first, right? That when, as a follower of Jesus, you experience from others the rolling of the eyes, the laughter, or the time that people think you're an idiot for being a Christian, for the times when family members or friends walk out because you believe the Bible, or even worse, Jesus is saying, expect that to happen, that that is normal. Now, clarification, verse 21. They will treat you in this way because of my name, right? Make sure you're experiencing persecution and hatred because of Jesus' name, not your name, right? If you're rude, a bully, arrogant, got bad breath and think, hey, they're persecuting me. No, no, that's you. That ain't Jesus, right? Let's clarify that. Verse 25, 25, they hated me without reason, right? Don't give them a reason. But I reckon a number of us think, and to be honest, I think this, something along the lines of this. If I am truly a loving person, right? And if I'm nuanced in the way that I talk about the gospel, then I shouldn't experience that much hate, right? You feel that too? You know, if I'm really a loving person and sort of clever in the way in which I would talk about it, I shouldn't experience that much hate. But here's the problem. Jesus couldn't do that, right? What makes us think we could? Jesus was the most loving person on this planet. He was the most sophisticated in the way in which he told the truth, and yet he hung up on the cross. And he's our hero. As Jesus says, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. You can be loving as anyone, and people will still rebel. You can be articulate of the gospel, and people will still choose to oppose you. Now, before we get to why that is the case, let me just highlight why that is not the case. Because some, you know, you, you talk, you see Christians around the world, and you see the stats of persecution, and it is horrifying, right? The imprisonment, the torture, the killing, it is horrifying. But we, when it comes to, let's just say, our patch, right? Lower North Shore, Sydney. Why is it that we don't experience as much persecution? Now, the default is to think, well, we live in a Christian or post-Christian nation, right? But I don't think it's as simple as that. What is the dominant worldview of our culture? Happiness. Do whatever makes you happy. So if your testimony is something like this, you grow up in a non-Christian home, and at uni or a youth group you became a Christian, and your parents thought there was just a phase, a hobby that you would outgrow, but you don't outgrow it. Their response is they might be disappointed, but at the end of the day, do whatever makes you feel happy. So that's not to excuse it, but to understand why in which there might not be as much anger or hostility is because the worldview prevents it from speaking out, because happiness is the God, Right? 
And so you can't tell anyone, ultimately, what they're doing is right or wrong, because as long as it makes you happy, right? That's just an understanding of our worldview. But most worldviews do not have those barriers in place, right? You have an allegiance to Jesus, and in most worldviews, that will come out in anger or shame or betrayal, and all sorts of things will happen. And they will publicly show their frustration and hatred that you are following Jesus and denying your worldview, your culture, whatever that may be. And Jesus is saying, when you experience that hatred, know it is normal. You know, when my dad became a Christian, his mum cried every day for two years at the shame of that. I, as a Christian, growing with a Christian hope, have not experienced that, right? But I remember dad saying, he said his experience of being a pastor compared to my experience, his son as a pastor, he thinks will be quite different. He has said publicly, he doesn't, we wouldn't be surprised if in the future, me as a pastor preaching the Bible, that I could end up in prison. He has high hopes for me, right? <laughs> now, look, it's speculation, right? We don't know the directions in which our culture is going, and it's easy to dismiss that, right? But I'll tell you why we shouldn't dismiss it, but have the expectation that hatred and persecution is very much on the horizon. Because we do not know how long the safety net of the worldview of happiness which we live will last. It will break at some point. And another worldview will come in. And we, brothers and sisters, need to be, expect that hatred, that opposition, all its forms, and it will, get extra, will come to us. Because Jesus is saying, if they hated me, they will hate you. Now, can I just say also too, as a side, that if you're a parent of children, part of discipling them is having conversations of this expectation, right? Uh, every now and then I have a conversation with daughter Audrey and telling her, you know, you might be teased at school. You, you might, in being a Christian, they make fun of you. And Jesus says that, that's to be expected. And, and so can I encourage you, part of discipling kids, if you've got kids, is having those conversations, right? But here's the question. Why does it happen? What, why? Verse 21 is the answer. They will treat you in this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to you, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for sin. What Jesus is saying, why experience persecution? Ultimately, it's not you, it's me. Jesus is very divisive. People either ran to him to worship him, or they ran to him to kill him. He is very divisive. And the more Jesus did, particularly in the last three years of his ministry, the more he revealed, the more he taught, the more the hatred and the opposition rose. And the more that you actively seek out Jesus in your life, the more the world will respond negatively. It's like the story of a missionary who told a story of, uh, he had a mirror on a tree, a shaving mirror. And a woman walked by and saw this mirror. But said this to the missionary, who is that horrible person in that tree? He said, said, this is a mirror. It's a reflection of you. The woman didn't like that and and, and said, I I want that mirror. I'll buy that mirror. He didn't want to give it to her, but eventually she did. Took the mirror, smashed it and said, I will never have it making faces at me again. Now that story is told because it it shows us that Jesus reveals our true reflection, and some do not like it. 
and some will smash hard to get rid of it. And sometimes if you bear Christ's name, that smashing will come on you. Because the righteousness of Christ reminds us of a guilt and shame, a need to repent of sin and pride. And the response sometimes to that can be anger and violence. Because I don't like what they say. That's what is happening when persecution comes, Jesus is saying. And what's our response to when it comes? Love. Mercy. That when your parents think you are crazy, but when your brother or sister think you're a fool, when those at your workplace think you're an idiot, they're really having a go at the Lord Jesus deep down. It's not you, Jesus, saying it's me. That our response, friends, always is mercy. Always love. Because as Jesus said, as he hung up on that tree, what did he say to those who are persecuting him? Father, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. Friends, Jesus calls his disciples whom he loves, come follow me. Come follow me. And here in John 15, he is moments away from dying on that cross. As it were, it was like a big hedge, a hedge that we could never penetrate, get through. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, he paves a way through that hedge to life on the other side. And he says, come, not go before me, go with me, follow me. But he hasn't created a nice shaped hole for us, just to glide through. No, we will get cut along the way. It's not a road of lollipops and rainbows. The cost of following Jesus, it is high, but friends, it is worth it. It's worth it because you know what is certain, that he is the vine, you are the branch, that you are his friend, you are beloved, you are chosen, and nothing can change that. That we are called to bear fruit, the fruit of love. And why? Verse 11, so your joy may be complete. All the while having the expectations, the world will hate us because they hated our Saviour. That we may feel like we don't really belong in this world. But that is a good thing because we belong to the world to come. The cost of discipleship is high, but it is worth it. Let me pray. Gracious Lord. You ask us to follow you, to be your disciples. And that is not a casual stroll. That is not an easy call, Lord. But we trust you, knowing that you do not call us to do anything you have not done yourself. That you denied yourself. You took up that cross. And then you rose again. Denying ourselves sacrifice. It is not easy, Lord Jesus. But we know on the other side there is life. You want the best for us. 
You want us to bear fruit. Be who you've called us to be. And so we ask, Lord, in the days ahead, in the weeks and the years, until we meet you face to face, that we will hold on to what is certain, that we would actively bear fruit and expect that, yes, we will be hated, but we are loved by the most important one that matters, you, Lord Jesus. And nothing and no one will change that. Amen.